Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Carlo. What is you doing, Vit Plant? You is knowing nothing of garden. You will see. All will be die. <laughs> that and more. But before that, you know the storystudio.org is where you will find so many storytelling training opportunities, like our upcoming Storytelling for Personal Growth class on July 17th and 18th. That's a class that uh, people who are brand new to storytelling like to kind of as a dipping your toes in so that you can brainstorm on life experiences that might become stories later. You do journaling exercises. You try your hand at shorter anecdote length stories. There's a lot of wonderful interactive activities in the class and it's all at the storystudio.org among so many other offerings. There's our video courses that you can download and take in your own time. There's our corporate workshops that we customize for the staffs of specific businesses. There's also storytelling for business workshops open to everybody. So it's very interesting. You're in a class with people from different career paths, helping one another shape your stories, you know, communicating your purpose, the things you've learned in your career along the way, or the way you'd like to pitch a particular initiative that you're proposing maybe to your own staff. Take a good look at the faculty at the About Us page on thestorystudio.org. You will see so many wonderful, lovely, talented people, the same people who you've heard on Risk or who are actually coaching the storytellers who appear on Risk, are our faculty members over at thestorystudio.org. So check it out. It is such a wonderful way to flex your creativity muscles in an empowering way, a meaningful way that you'll end up using throughout the rest of your life. Again, that's at thestorystudio.org. My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Freddie Joaquim behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Protection. Three fascinating stories, funny, scary, and thought-provoking. Hey, if you're a musician, our audio editors thought it would be fun if we invited musicians to cover or do remixes of the Risk theme song. So if that sounds like fun to you, reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com and I'll let you know more info. Now, on this episode, we're going to feature another story that came from our recent live show at Caveat, our return to the stage in New York City. And you know what? We're going to be back there at Caveat on July 15th. We're going to have another one of these where we're on stage, Lower East Side in New York City. The show will be at 7 p.m. Eastern. You must show proof of vaccination. And it will also be live streamed, so anyone out there in the world can tune in. But be sure to get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear an anecdote by Lemore Cohen. She recorded it at home in Israel. But before that, this crazy story that Michelle Carlo shared at our recent live show at Caveat. Michelle is a favorite of ours. She's been on the show a bunch of times. This story also appears in written form in her memoir, Fish Out of Agua. And the whole book is such a treat. You can find her at michellecarlo.com. And here she is now with a story we call After Dark. Nothing good happens after 2 o'clock in the morning. This is what my mom said to me every time I tried to get my curfew raised. I was 19, going on 20, and it was the summer that in between my freshman and sophomore year at the School of Visual Arts, the school that I went to to escape the provincial Bronx neighborhood I had grown up in. And in this school, it was amazing how much I just opened and blossomed, and I needed and wanted to be able to sneak into the art openings I would get thrown out of, and sneak into the clubs I would get thrown out of, and like throw up in Washington Square Park and get thrown out of that too. Because come on, I'm like, mom, come on, I'm almost 20, I'm almost an adult. Oh, and by the way, my mom, yes, she is from Puerto Rico, and um, Spanish was her first language, but at this point she speaks perfectly well-modulated English. But whenever she pissed me off, she sounded exactly like this. And she went to me, Michelle, cuando you eres un adulto, you will have your own apartamento, you will be paying your own rent, and as long as you live under my roof, you will be home at two o'clock in the morning. And I was like, ah! But I had no choice. You know, my father was standing behind her going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I had to obey them. You know, but so I came home drunk. I came home tripping. 
Once or twice, I came home without my underwear. But by God, was I in that house at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then five years later, yes, five years, I kept changing my major every damn year. A miracle happened. I graduated. And soon, I moved away. I basically put my finger on a subway map and said, oh, there it is, Prospect Park. Oh, it's in Brooklyn. As far away from the Bronx as you could get from my family and still be in the same city. Oh, and let me tell you about this apartment. Did you ever hear about um, this movie from like the, from the mid 20th century called This Property is Condemned? Well, this was this apartment, okay? I mean, like, you know, every outlet, like, sparked. There was a hole under the sink large enough for a German shepherd to crawl through. My father patched that up. He got someone to fix all the outlets, but there was a backyard. I mean, it was a mess. I mean, it didn't look like anybody had been out there in years. And, you know, it was like $550 a month for this apartment with the backyard, okay? Okay, it's 1988, all right, so don't, don't, you know. And, and um, <laughs> 1988. And in that part of Brooklyn where South Slope meets Windsor Terrace wasn't really all that. And my dad felt it was safe because the neighborhood was full of Puerto Ricans. I mean, that part, anyway, now I'm like one of the three left, but you know, that's, that's I digress. So, you know, I'm in the backyard one day and I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I can clean it up and I can invite boys here and we could like get drunk and get high and have big parties and then I hear noise and I look over to my right at the people right next door because you know it's row houses so they're connected in the front but there's backyards that are separated by like these chain link fences and I see my next door neighbors which consist of this old heavyset man who's just like drink it's like two o'clock in the afternoon and he's already he's trash he's like like he's so drunk and this woman She's probably in her, in her 50s, and she was distinctive because she had an eye patch. She only had one eye, and she chain-smoked Paul Malls, and she wore bright red lipstick. And then I was like, oh, you know, well, neighbors. I was like, hi. And then the sun comes out of the, uh, you know, banging from the screen door. And when I took a look at him, I was like, I don't want to be these people's friends. I mean, he was like 18, and he kind of would have been cute in that kind of sickly, skinny punk rock way, except that he had pimples all over his body. And I could tell that because he was just wearing this yellowed underwear, and he was going to like sunbathe. And the mother like said, get in house. Get in house now! Because she saw me. What did she think I was going to do? Rape her noob son? Oh, God, no! Ew. And so I was just like, okay, hi, bye, see ya. I got other things to worry about. And then, a few weeks after that, I lost my job. Yeah. My new job. The job that allowed me to pay $550 a month for an apartment. The job that I had not yet worked long enough to collect unemployment. So I was stuck. And I did have a small amount of savings, but you know, that wasn't gonna go very far, you know, and I also had gotten two kittens to keep me company because, you know, being an adult was kind of lonely. And, and, I, and, and I was trying to budget, I went out and I bought a 10 pound bag of rice and a 10 pound bag of beans because hey, I'm Puerto Rican, I can live on rice and beans, right? And I'm looking at the, I go in the backyard one day while the neighbors are there and I'm just like blocking them out. Oh God, how do you sunbathe in your underwear? That's so nasty. So anyway, so I'm looking at, you know, before I saw like, oh, I'm gonna be frolicking in the dirt with boys. I'm like, no, I look at this backyard and I saw dinner. So I start cleaning it up. I mean, it took a long time. I mean, like I unearthed so many decades of pets and 
and broken Rheingold bottles and Indian head pennies and, and uh, like the mercury dimes and everything. But I finally got it cleaned up. And I went to the, um, the big Grand Army Plaza Library, the big uh, Central Brooklyn Library, because this is 1988, people, there's no internet. And I got every book I could read to take up on organic gardening. So and I read all the books, and then I get back on my bike, and I ride down Flatbush Avenue. I, I, I kind of like tied a milk crate to the front of the bike. And where the Apple Store is now, right by the Brooklyn Academy of Music on Flatbush, there used to be this big like greenhouse type of place where you could get like flats of plants and stuff. So I got all these plants, and I plant them and, and I do everything so carefully and I remember I planted 36 stalks of silver queen white corn and I planted two kinds of tomatoes Roma tomatoes plum tomatoes and regular to beefsteak tomatoes and string beans and zucchini and eggplant and in between everything I planted flowers and herbs that I read were going to repel things like you put marigolds around the corn you put nasturtiums around the tomatoes you plant garlic and mint and fennel in between everything these would repel things and I'm doing this while I'm, I'm doing this my neighbor the eye patch lady is watching me and smoking and she says to me what is you doing with plant you is knowing nothing of garden you will see all will be die <laughs> ugly girl and I'm just like did you ever look in the mirror no I didn't say that and I just like I ignored her because like you know I don't have I don't have work you can't find work I don't know if there was a recession or anything in 1988 but it might as well have been I couldn't find a job and I'm like I'm planting this garden because I like veggies and I want to eat and as the summer went on and she had planted a garden too I, I forgot to add that so but as the summer went on my garden blossomed like a Henri Rousseau painting full of vitality and lush greenness her garden was a soggy heap of mold and rot. And while I took buckets out and watered it every morning, she stood there by the fence looking at me and she go, you, why is this happening? Why is your plant live it and mine is die? These not cut out, ugly girl. And I'm just like, whatever, what was I gonna tell her? That all the pests that were repelled from my garden were feasting on hers? I mean, probably, but I had other things to worry about because like I had been overeating the rice and beans at the beginning and I was starting to get towards the end of both bags and I was starting to be hungry. But you know, I said, okay, this is gonna be fine because the first tomatoes in August when you just get the, the zucchini and the tomato that are just about to be ripe was like a few days away. But then a few days later when I went to try to pick them, the tomatoes were gone. And then the zucchini and the green beans, and half the corn. And I couldn't figure it out. I was like, what, did it like, like Sasquatch or something come in and like raid with the guardian angels or something? I couldn't understand it. And then like I'm trying to water and weed and take care of what's left. And I see my next door neighbor there smoking. <sighs> Why your plant is livid and mine is die. Not correct. <sighs> Ugly girl. And I'm just like, whatever. I'm just like, you know, because I'm, I'm starting to get really hungry. I mean, I don't know if, if any of you have ever been, like, really hungry. Like, you try to shoplift a can of tuna fish, but you ain't got the balls, the cojones to do it, and, like, you put it back hungry. And I don't mean, because, like, you stop eating bread for three days because you want to look good when you go to the beach. I mean, really hungry. The kind that keeps you up 
at night and no matter how much water you drink, it never fills it up. And I was spending the money I should have been spending, whatever pennies I had on food for myself. I was trying to feed my two kittens, but that wasn't even working. I was catching crickets and water bugs for them. And oh God, what a mess. But I was like, okay, the eggplants are gonna be ripe. I'll eat those. And then one eggplant is missing. And then another, and then another. And then one day, there's a message in the dirt. A fat, bare footprint with a lipstick Paul Mall cigarette stub in it. And I go, whoosh. And at the chain link fence that separates our houses, there's a little, like, four-foot stepladder. And my landlord with the eye patch saying, whoosh. Ah, your plant is livid and mine is die. Not correct. <laughs> Ugly girl. And I was so furious. I mean, I wanted to jump that fence, because I could have. I was like 26. I was like, whoa. I wanted to jump that fence and, and like grab her, rip off her eye patch, stick my fist into the hole where her eye was, make it come all the way out through her toto, and like tie everything together. But I knew that if I so much as put, laid one finger on her, I'd be the one to go to jail. Because she'd say, Puerto Rican, she is die. And I was just like, I can't do this. So I just basically had a nervous breakdown. I screamed. I went into the apartment. I started banging my head against the wall and the floors, and I'm just screaming, screaming, screaming. Because at this point, I knew that I was a total and complete failure as un adulto. And I would have to go back home to 2 o'clock in the morning curfew. And listen, I know at any time during the summer, I could have just, my parents were a phone call away. 25 cents, man, you know? And I, they, they would have came and helped me. My, they loved me. But no, this was principle, man. I needed to prove to them that I was un adulto. And as I'm crying and realizing that I'm a failure and I'm about to just like go to the payphone on the corner and call collect and tell my dad to come get me, my little Russian blue kitten, Boris, who had been eating a steady diet of grubs and worms and water bugs and crickets, went into the bathroom, took the worst smelling cat crap I ever smelled in my life, and out of the fear and the anxiety and the miasma and the tears, came an idea. When I went back into my backyard, it was two o'clock in the morning. The sky was bright and clear underneath a fingernail moon. There were three eggplants left, but I picked the biggest, fattest one, which I knew would be perfect the next day. And I went and I lay down in the garden, I would lay down on the ground underneath that eggplant, and I took out my exacto knife. School of Visual Arts, remember? Five years, I know how to cut a line. <laughs> and I took the bottom of this eggplant, and I scored a hole around the end. And I kept scoring and scoring and scoring until I had a plug, which I put next to me. And then I scored and scored and scored a tunnel inside that eggplant, all the time measuring it against the circumference of the cat turd that lay in the, by my side. I started sweating. This was kind of hard work, very ex exacting. Haha, <laughs> exacting knife, exacting. And the sky started to grow light. And I was like, oh, I have to finish, I have to finish. And then I hear the screen door slam, and I see the lights go on in their kitchen next door. So I just panic. I just grab the cat turd, shove it up in the eggplant, shove the plug back in, and I just like basically roll down into my apartment. And like I fall asleep on the floor because I'm just like exhausted, you know? 
I wake up and the cats are licking my face and I thought, thank God I'm not dead, they would be eating my face. And I looked in the backyard and um, the eggplant was gone. And I was like, okay, this is promising. <laughs> Nothing left on the floor. I'm like, I'm gonna celebrate. I'm gonna go to Key Food and I'm gonna shoplift a steak. I'm gonna feed these kitties good. So I put on a, it's like 90 degrees. So I put on a coat, like, yeah, like I'm gonna get like, yeah, and I'm gonna go to Key Food. This is how my life, I'm gonna go shoplift food from, to celebrate that I stuffed up an eggplant. And, I, and I'm walking past my next door neighbor's house and they're all on their stoop and they all look kind of green. And I look at them and I say, hi, how is garden? And they look at me and they go, Hurr! and they just like, run into the house and they slammed the door and I almost busted in half laughing because what I wanted to know was how did I find out that that eggplant was booby oh I mean poopy trapped <laughs> did it fall out when she picked it or did it steam and liquefy inside when she cooked it for her family whole now I will never know what happened with that eggplant and that family but what I do know is from that day forward nothing ever disappeared from my garden again and never again for the next five years that I lived there. And three weeks after that day, I got a job, a good job, and I never again had to move back home to two o'clock in the morning curfew. So, nothing good happens after two o'clock in the morning? I'm sorry, Mom. This time, you were wrong. It's 8.30 in the evening. Me and my husband and our 12-year-old son are going in this ice cream parlor. And our son is so excited to have some alone time with mom and dad. We let him choose all the flavor he wants and we sit around this round table with a big ice cream bowl. And he starts eating and tells me, mom, this is so good, you gotta try this. I pick up my spoon, I dip it in the ice cream, and before I can scoop it out and taste, I hear it. It's a siren. Every Israeli knows what that means. A siren means rockets are being shot. Go find shelter immediately. So I grab my son's arm and I turn to the teenager who just sold us the ice cream and I say, where's the shelter? Because of course, every building in Israel has a shelter. But she's frozen. She's not answering. So I say it again a little louder. Yo, where's the shelter? She's still frozen, but some guy who runs from behind me taps my shoulder and says, follow me. And he starts running towards the back door of the ice cream place. We run after him and around the building, we walk into this joint shelter where employees from all the shops in this little strip gather. And since we usually don't need the shelter, it's a warehouse on most days. So we're sitting atop of boxes of flour and tomato sauce. And most of the employees are teenagers because it's an evening shift. And we're still at the end of Corona days. So I look around and I see that nobody's wearing a mask. And I start yelling, everybody, put your masks on, put your masks on. And they're all looking at me like I'm some crazy old woman because who thinks of the masks and Corona when rockets are being shot at you? I'm holding my son. 
with one hand and with the other I'm trying to text my daughters and call my daughters. I left three daughters home alone. They're not picking up their phones. They're not answering my texts. And I start to stress out. Also, my husband did not walk with us to the shelter and my son keeps on looking for him and he says, do you want me to go outside and look for him? And I'm like, no, stay here. And I grab him really hard. I'm texting my daughters constantly and I'm thinking, I hope they just ran for the shelter and left their cell phones in the rooms or something. All I can pray is that a rocket doesn't fall on our house so that my daughters will not be there alone when this happens. And we have to wait in the shelter for 10 minutes before we can get out. We get out. We find my husband outside and he is ecstatic. He says, this was so beautiful. He stood outside and he watched the rockets and the Iron Dome from the other side. And he said the skies were lit like it's the 4th of July. And I'm mad at him because he just gave bad example for, my, for our son. We walk back to the ice cream place and our ice cream is on the table, untouched, of course. And I want to go home because I really don't feel like ice cream anymore. But my husband was just filled with new energy. And he said, why? Let's stay. He can have cookies as well. And that's when my daughters call me back. So I, I decided we can stay in the ice cream for a little longer. And I pick up the phone. And it's my 10-year-old daughter who says she was just out of the shower, walked into her room, dropped the towel and stood naked in front of her closet deciding what should I wear tomorrow for school when she heard the siren. So she just picked up the first blanket that she saw and ran hysterically down to the basement. Then she let me talk to my 15-year-old daughter who said she was in the middle of doing her math work and now she has to start all over again and she was so upset. She was talking to me while she was picking up her math work and going back down to the shelter because she says, I know there's going to be another siren tonight and they're not going to find me unprepared. And then I talked to my 17-year-old daughter and she said, Mom, I took care of everything. I made sure they stay calm. I counted the 10 minutes and I was so proud of her. I said, yeah, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much for taking care of your sisters. And she was like, so could we have ice cream too? They all know the drill. <laughs> They're all Israelis. They all know that another siren will be there. They all know to run to the shelter. It's been almost a month since this happened. And still, we're all jumpy. And whenever I hear a motorcycle accelerating outside, it sounds a little bit like a siren. So we all jump and I go, was that a siren or is that just a motorcycle? It takes, from previous experience, I know that it takes a few months until we all relax and let motorcycles drive freely. This ain't no party, this ain't no day. 
This is Risk. This is Sherry Renee Scott behind me now, singing Life During Wartime. And before that, we heard from Lemore Cohen. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time i'm here to tell you about bowl and branch sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash they're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus 15 percent off your first order with code odyssey so head to boll and branch.com today exclusions apply see site for details drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails break free with clickup.com the one app to replace them all Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. Folks, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, the support of our fans is crucial to us. We wish it wasn't so necessary, but we really do need your help by becoming a member over at patreon.com risk. You will have access to so many bonus stories. This week, the newest one we're putting up over there is by Ariel Bushnell. You know, someone starts giving you a little diddly on your clitoris and you can't say no. But <laughs> at least that's me. I don't know. <laughs> We have over 135 bonus stories up. 
50 check-ins. I Last week, I just put up a new check-in of my own. Just, you know, kind of audio journaling about how things are going behind the scenes. We have interviews with staff and storytellers. Free story studio video classes. Links to video versions of our past live streams and more. So check out all of that at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, our final story on this week's episode is a very special treat. This was actually recorded at the Mystery Box Show in Portland, Oregon. Our good friends Reba and Eric over there at the Mystery Box Show put on such a fabulous show. You should definitely check out their podcast. You should check out their YouTube channel. They have another show called Sex People that I have been on before where various panelists discuss various issues around sex. They're just the greatest. Check them out at mysteryboxshow.com. And the story we're about to hear was recorded there. It's a story by Fabian Gordon. And Fabian's story was so fascinating to me that I recorded some thoughts afterwards at the end of the episode today. Now, there is a little bit of an audio glitch uh, toward the end of the story, but just for a moment, no big deal. This was recorded years ago, so it's a thrill to finally get Fabian on the show. Here he is now, Fabian Gordon, with a story we call A Change of Perspective. It was the winter of 2001 and the world had changed. It got very dark. That's not the only thing that had happened. The dot-com boom happened. It was great. We were all making a lot of money doing nothing. Then that went away. And in that same theme, one thing was consistent. I was coming out of another failed relationship. I'd only had failed relationships up till this point. Every woman I'd ever connected with just never went anywhere. And most of my friends at that point, they were on their first, second marriage, some their second divorce, they were 0-2, and I just was, it was never happening. I thought, well, what the fuck, okay? So I started to really expand my horizons. I was in Los Angeles, so it was a pretty diverse community, and I was dating women of different races, ages, socioeconomic classes, newly arrived immigrant, didn't matter, just kept falling on my face. Well, I did the math. There was only one constant in that whole equation, that was me. Obviously, I was fucking up. Wasn't sure what I was doing wrong, but clearly I was doing something wrong. <clears throat> and a buddy calls me up and he's in Atlanta. He says, hey man, we're into some wild shit. <laughs> Nightclub promotions, getting fucking high every night. Come on out, it'll be great. Stay at my loft. You know, I'm currently untethered. <clears throat> <laughs> between employment, between relationships, house I was renting, they're like, yeah, it's, just not, it's not working out. I'm like, yeah, I'm beginning to get that vibe. So there I went, flew to Atlanta, and all their friends were artists and a whole bunch of them were in the gay community, and I didn't really have any exposure to that community up until that point. But I must tell you, all the cliches are true. 
Brunch? Fuck, really? <laughs> Bloody Marys? Who knew, right? I couldn't decorate my place. A couple guys come over 15 minutes later. I'm like, how the fuck did you pull? Wow. Wow. I'm really impressed. <clears throat> well, these guys all like to party in the underground. What I mean by that was kind of the off-the-main-drag club. There was a place called Backstreet. Now, if you were in Atlanta in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that may mean something. If not, let me give you a little explanation. It was an old industrial building, <clears throat> but like a lot of places in the South, it dealt in inconsistencies and incongruities and <clears throat> all the bullshit agreements that people make with themselves. So it was a private nightclub, but to join the club, you needed five bucks and a pulse. So everybody in town was a member. It was fucking crazy, right? Huge sign out front. We are a gay nightclub, but no bad attitudes. And I'm like, hey, we're all in ecstasy. We feel fucking great. <laughs> this is fucking outstanding. The lights. So <clears throat> you walk into this huge complex. As you come in kind of on the main floor, there's the bar. The drag queens are getting ready for their show and all the normal things that generate revenue for a nightclub. And then it kind of split into two different directions. Now, if you went up high, that's where most of the straight kids went. I mean, <clears throat> everybody liked Backstreet, but God damn it, they weren't going to mix. So they went up, watched the drag show, because they weren't gay, and then they went ahead and danced to Bad Disco. And off that <clears throat> was a patio about, you know, about a third the size of this particular auditorium. That was more like Casablanca. Everybody went to Casablanca. So you'd all mix up there. Now, if you were cool, if you were cool, <laughs> then you'd go listen to the music in the pit. And the pit was enormous. It was basically a, a basement, if you will, that was probably 10,000 square feet. And this is where the boys danced and where the music was amazing and the lights were fan-fucking-tastic and we would just be like, honk, honk, oh, this is great, it feels wonderful. Now, <clears throat> the thing about this particular population, you may already know, every one of these guys looked like they just walked out of a fashion shoot. It's like, how the fuck is that possible that you're all here? I mean, it's like statistically improbable, right? Yet there they were. I was just like, this is fucking weird. All right, well, I'll go with it. So there I am, and the cool people are there, and the young ladies, all these beautiful southern bells, they want to dance with the boys. So I'm like, oh, wow, hotties, hey, how you doing? Because, you know, I'm doing so well, I figured I'll try my luck in the south. No, it's not working out. But for different reasons. See, they all want to get with these beautiful gay men who just look like fucking Adonis, who want nothing to do with them. And half of these guys, Adonis, these Adonis guys, they have a bear fetish, right? So they're coming on to me, and I'm just like, Good. thanks for playing. You can't win. I'm chasing the girls. The girls are chasing the boys. The boys are chasing me. Nobody's getting laid. It's a story of my fucking life. Yeah, I've flown 3,000 miles to have the same experiences. I'm like, cool. Maybe I'll get fired and evicted later. Make it a fucking day. You know, do a little shopping. Right? What the fuck? So anyway, we're taking so much ecstasy, we could have won fucking awards. And I'm sitting there. There's a mezzanine over the pit, and we're just jamming out. Thonk, 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 thonk. And the lights are hitting me, and it's fantastic. If you've never done that drug, you probably shouldn't start. But if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then I'm sitting there having a great time. And I feel what can only be described as a missile. And it's trying to go through my leather pants, which are a great thing to wear while you're rolling, by the way, because they feel great. <laughs> through my leather pants, and I come up off the ground. 
I weigh 300 pounds, guys. Imagine how fucking hard that is to get a man my size off the ground. Yet it happened. Jesus fucking Christ. And I look over, a couple guys to my left, and they're doing the same thing, holding their ass, and everybody can see in my face. I'm hot as hell, and I don't mean excited. I'm in a fucking state of rage. And they're all pointing to this guy. And I see this dude walking, and it's best if I demonstrate. I mean, he's really digging in. And he's going down the line and trying to stick his hand up, I don't know, a dozen different guys' asses, because it's an interesting way to pick men up, I'm told. But (laughs) I was not receptive to this, as you might imagine. I'm like, that's it. I'm going to fucking kill this guy. Because you know what? He had it coming. My buddy, he sees it. He grabs me. Don't do it. We're in a gay club, bro. It's not going to fly here. We're guests. This is not fucking cool. And I'm like, fuck him. He's like, I got, he got grabbed. I got grabbed. I'm like, I didn't give a shit about being grabbed, bro. It's not that. The guy sexually assaulted us. Fuck him. He's going to pay. And he pulls me back and he starts laughing. Now, at this point, you may think, oh, that's really funny. I mean, should go into a Joe Pesci routine. What, I'm a clown? I amuse you? No, I did not do that. I didn't have that sense of mind. I'm like, what's so funny? And he goes, bro, now you know how women feel. Oh, fuck, really? Well, the truth is I don't know how women feel. I had one experience. That sure as hell does not encapsulate what many of you have gone through in your life, right? But it was a significant one. And it was one that forced me to change my entire paradigm. Now, I didn't have a habit of trying to stick my hand up people's asses. But, yeah, if I wanted a hug from you, I was going to get it. Or if you didn't shake my hand, I'd take offense because that was disrespectful. Now, at this point, I need to give you a little backstory because it will be helpful to understand my state of mind. I grew up part of my life in Las Vegas. My father was a well-known, in the wrong circles, adult nightclub owner. He was exactly the kind of person you think runs those places. So my childhood was a mix of terror, violence, oppression, disrespect from him. And I believe they call that toxic masculinity now. That's the term kids use. We we just called it growing up. But that's what that was. He was strangely progressive, though, for a gangster. He was not homophobic, probably for business reasons. And he was very anti-racist in the 70s. This wasn't something he tolerated. I always thought that was odd. But my mother remarried, and those two things got filled in just fine with the next guy. So, yeah, I didn't get to escape it at all. Well... I'm thinking about this. What's really enraging me is this man has disrespected me. That's really what's pissed me off, is he's violated me. He's taken from me my agency. And I want to fucking take something from him, a little more permanent. I've recounted this story to other people, and they're like, that's what a man would do. And I'm like, well, what would a woman do? They're like, we can't do that. That's your privilege. You get to exert power. We have to take it. Ah, fuck. (laughs) Well... I can't make people better men before I see an action. So the only person I could focus on was myself. And I wondered, were my failures in relationships at all related to that type of behavior? Certainly to that mindset, what's mine I will take. Hmm. That didn't get me very far. And if I caused anyone that pain, Jesus Christ, that's not what anybody signed up for, not ever. So I really wanted to stop and think about 
Is this the kind of person I want to be? Now, I'm in Atlanta. People are, you know, outwardly polite, privately not. <clears throat> it's affectation, but we accept that. And I go in like I normally do a few days later for a hug on a lady, and I see her pull back. Oh, shit, I'm that guy. Oh, fuck. What do I do now? So I'm like, well, time to practice. So I lean back a little bit. Hey, are you okay? Do you hug, shake hands? If not, it's okay. I get it. It's no problem. I take no offense. She smiled. I shake hands. Okay, cool. Now, that's something that's <clears throat> been very hard for me to come to terms with. It took a long time to understand the boundaries because when you live in a body, especially if you're a big guy, you really have no concept of how you relate to other people. This is just the body you're rolling around in, and hi, you're five foot two. I don't distinguish that. I just go, hey, how you doing? I don't think of it as a threat. I do now, of course. I can see how you might be uncomfortable. I get the remark all the time, don't want to meet you in a dark alley, and I just go, thank God I don't frequent dark alleys. <laughs> so we can meet here. Do you shake? I don't know. But one of the things, hopefully, we all mature with time, emotionally at least. God knows we all mature otherwise. We all get older. And I found after this experience, I was starting to have more success with women. All of a sudden, respecting boundaries meant respecting the person. Who knew? Because <laughs> I'm going back to childhood, and dad is, you know... He's got brothels and strip clubs and massage parlors is what they're called and drives his big Cadillac and he is straight out of a fucking movie. And when that's your upbringing and you think that's normal, clearly it wasn't, everything you do after that is by default defective. I don't want to be defective anymore. So the good news is I changed my ways. In fact, if any of you should see me after the show, I won't engage you physically. You'll have to ask for a hug or a handshake. I do that in business. I do that in my personal life. It's just how I roll. Been that way for about 15 years, which is when I met a lady who for some reason has decided to stay with me and be my wife for almost that long. So the story has a happy ending. Thank you. is almost all for this week's episode folks this is april wine behind me now and we just heard from fabian gordon i'll tell you i wanted to record some thoughts that i had that got all stirred up by fabian's story i love when this happens i love when it happens 
a listener will write in that a story was told that stirred up all sorts of thoughts and feelings that the storyteller themselves might not have anticipated and that we, the curators of the show, might not have anticipated. And I'm recording on Pride Day 2021, so feels like the right day to be doing it. This particular story was especially illuminating for me because it's another reminder how much insight I can gain from listening to someone with a different perspective than I might have had if I was in the same room at the same time. I am 51 now, and there is a type of conversation that is often had in private these days among gay men of my generation and the generation that came before mine. And it's about how aspects of gay male culture are changing and about how when you feel like something's been lost, if you're being honest, you can't help but admit that something is also being gained. When I was 18 years old in 1988, and I first came to New York City to go to college, it was still pretty much the standard that a gay male space, like a gay bar, nightclub, gay bathhouse, it was typical that when you walked into one of those places, the only other people in the room were going to be gay men. And for most of us in our late teens, early 20s, who had just recently escaped smaller, more conservative places to come like pilgrims to these bigger cities in search of other gay men, most of us had at least 18 years of trauma behind us. At least 18 years, those foundational years when your psychology is being baked in of being terrified that we might be going to hell, that we might die of a terrible disease, that we might lose all our friends and family and futures and be ostracized just for being who we were. So we came to these big cities deeply wounded. We'd never learned all the dating and mating rituals and socialization that straight kids learned in junior high and high school. So in those days, when a guy like me would walk through the doors of a gay bar, there was a palpable, visceral feeling that you were entering into a different dimension. I mean, there was an energy that you just felt walking through that door. My body would feel the shift that I was walking into a space inhabited only by men who love men. The testosterone and the pheromones were vibrating in the air. And there was a feeling of brotherhood, but in an animalistic way, like you were flowing into the shared energy of your pack or your pride. And because we had so much trauma in our pasts, most of us were not so skilled at verbal 
socializing with those we found attractive. But we had one common language. We all knew we had it. We had all experienced it. The carnal language. Speaking to one another with our bodies. Cruising is one of those phenomena that are slipping away now. Hookup apps have kind of been the death knell of cruising. And I had sex with guys in the subway, in the park, in public restrooms, in abandoned buildings, you know, those were amazing adventures. And I hope that, you know, anthropologists are researching as much as they can about how cruising worked. Because it's hard for us even to describe. It was that in a world where it might be dangerous to speak out loud, we learned how to communicate only with our bodies. I once had sex with a transit worker in the subway. Now this guy looked as heterosexual as you can imagine. Working class guy wearing his uniform for manual labor down there in the tunnels. Looked like the kind of guy who might kill you if you flirted with him. But we spoke with our eyes and our bodies. And we had what they call carnal knowledge. Uh, that, <laughs> that incident, I still think of that incident. <laughs> I still think of that incident, you know, uh, for, for masturbatory purposes. Because it's one of the hottest things that ever happened to me. Now, most gay bars back then had a back room. The back room was a room without windows and with the lights out. And it was just understood that if you slipped back there you would enter into this absorption of groping hands and open mouths and the air was just thick with the smell of sweat and cum and poppers. And again, it was just this sort of animalistic union happening. And the easiest way that a guy in the front of the gay bar would let you know that he'd like for you to meet him in the back room was simply for him to pass by you while groping your ass or your cock. And some of the most magical moments I've had started that way. And even a relationship I once had started that way. I mean, the thing is, if you had no interest in that particular guy who groped you while passing by, you were usually just flattered. And if a guy had too much to drink, you know, didn't seem to know how to take a hint and kept groping you, you knew you could shove him away or even smack his hand to make things crystal clear. There were times that I shoved guys so hard that they went careening across the room into a wall and then i didn't give a second thought about it you know like water off a duck's back i just went right back into the fun because there's such a different power dynamic between men and men versus men and women or other genders 
that kind of thing was not perceived, at least as far as I know, by anyone I knew back then, as being so problematic. I know someone who was assigned female at birth, but transitioned. And his first time in a gay bar, after transitioning, someone groped him. And he said to a friend, I was just sexually assaulted. And his friend said, dude, you're in the gay scene now. There's gonna be a lot of people in the room who aren't on that wavelength. And that wavelength is hard to justify or even to describe with words because it's visceral. You know, several years back, I was at a pansexual kink camp, folks of all genders and orientations. And they asked me to run an event at the camp that they wanted to be called Cruising in the Woods. <laughs> they said, hey, you're an old school gay guy. Could you create an experience here at camp that had all the feeling that is typical of cruising in the woods? So I said, uh, sure, I'd give it a shot. And I started spreading rumors that there would be this thing happening around midnight. And I gave people a, a vague notion of where to find this clearing in the woods. You know, just like guys in New York would tell other guys where to find the ramble area in Central Park. Sure enough, around midnight, a lot of folks came down into that spot, but something started to go wrong in my perspective. A lot of women came, which everyone was invited, but they were chit-chatting. <laughs> you know, you were hearing all this stuff like, is it okay if I touch you here? Oh my gosh, that tickles. And oh, let's talk about this dynamic we have going on here and, and so on and so on. And I kept having to run over to these folks to say, hey, um, cruising usually doesn't involve talking. You know, it kind of breaks the spell. It was useless. I, 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 I could not control it. And so it all just became more like a late night social in the woods. And yet I made a great friend there that night. So I can't complain. But in the past couple of decades, more conservative, white, wealthy gays mostly made it a huge priority that gays should assimilate into the broader culture. That as much as possible, we should conform. We should put our most heteronormative faces on and make a case for getting married and have the white picket fence kind of life and have a day at Disney World devoted to us and on and on. And in all of that came this situation where straight people just started hanging out at gay bars. And, you know, you'd walk into a gay bar and the loudest thing happening in the room might be a gaggle of straight girls having a drunken bachelorette party. Or you spend an hour trying to flirt with a guy across the room only to finally figure out that he's one of three straight guys who came here with their one gay friend, right? <laughs> so, for gay men of my generation and the one before, there are these mixed feelings of, 
Whoa, okay, it's kind of awesome that everyone feels welcome now. And yet, the energy in the room is different. And on top of that, we have a younger generation of queer folks who have no memory of those things I was talking about, like cruising. Their memory is of Disney World. You know, they grew up watching gay people on TV being pretty sexless and harmless with the white picket fences. They have also forged new pathways in queer culture, some of which have been like so remarkably educational for us older folks, and some of which we just quite frankly have a hard time keeping up with or, or completely maybe comprehending some of the time. I chose to re-record parts of this monologue you're hearing because a risk fan heard the original version of this, this monologue, and wrote into the Facebook discussion group and I felt educated about the response there. So I decided to re-record some of this. In the original version of the monologue, I spoke about how it seemed confusing or disappointing to me to hear rumors on Twitter or you know, see mention in online articles that this year, supposedly younger queer asexuals or folks who identify as queer and are only attracted to the opposite gender were complaining that it's embarrassing that the concept of sex might be included in a pride parade. I was saying that it was my understanding that younger folks, queer and or asexual, were complaining that there should be no kinky clothing or other sexual sorts of expressions happening during pride celebrations. And I was saying, you know, for those of us who grew up desperately trying to hide our erections in the locker room in high school for fear of being gay bashed, it's disconcerting to think that asexual queers don't want sex associated with our struggle. But the person who wrote in about that pointed out that nowadays the word queer has shifted once again to mean not heteronormative. And I apologize in advance if you're listening to this in 2022 or 2023, by which time I'm pretty confident the word heteronormative will be considered offensive. And that the word asexual is most commonly understood now to mean someone who simply doesn't feel sexual attraction. Not that they don't have sex itself, not that they're not kinky or anything like that, but just that they don't feel sexual attraction. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, Gee, good Lord, I shouldn't be speaking so generally about rumors on Twitter or questionably sourced articles, you know, in very well-reputed magazines and newspapers, they regularly just cite totally anecdotal evidence nowadays as being signs of a huge trend when 
There's no such thing, you know? So I don't know who exactly was complaining about kink at Pride or how many people were complaining about it. And I've clearly got things to continue learning about younger queer folks and asexual folks. I would do well to hear more of their stories and try to walk a mile in their shoes, as the saying goes. So I'm always very mindful that in culture, when something's lost, something's gained. When something's gained, something's lost. I was recently on a talk show panel that was run by the folks who also run the Mystery Box show. They sometimes do this talk show called Sex People. On the night I was on the panel, there were several much younger people there, and myself, and Paul Thomas, who is 72 years old, and who was a big porn star in the 1970s. Now, I was super aware that as the one Generation X guy in the mix, the guy between two generations, I could totally understand both Paul, who had lived a wildly debaucherous, you know, reckless, abandoned sort of life before AIDS came around, and I could totally understand the younger folks who have all sorts of new language around issues like consent and negotiation and safety and sobriety and so on. But Paul kept terrifying <laughs> the younger folks with his stories about how, for example, going to the mine shaft while on coke and quaaludes the Mineshaft, if you don't know, was the most legendary of all gay BDSM clubs with no rules, the raunchiest, riskiest club there ever was. And Paul was telling everyone that what made that place so transcendentally magical was that it was not safe. That you could very well go through quite an ordeal, a, a dark night of the soul, or, or see something you couldn't unsee. But in all that risk came incomparable experiences. And I knew what he was talking about. I knew that magic. And I knew why the younger folks were so alarmed by the way he was talking. But there are so many ways I come from a place of privilege in being male and white and cisgendered and college educated. And I've learned enough from curating a storytelling show to know that there may well have been many gay men of my generation back in the day who were traumatized by the groping and manhandling in bars. I know I've been shocked, and you can imagine I am not easily shocked, but I have been shocked over the years to hear stories from my friends who are people of color sharing about some of the racism that they've experienced in the queer community and the kink community. That has been eye-opening. So all of that, is why Fabian Gordon's story 
is so fascinating to me. Because although in recent years I've been feeling like, ah, the gay scene isn't what it used to be, this story puts me in someone else's shoes yet again. In this case, one of those heterosexual men who now feel okay about coming into gay spaces, experiencing being violated. And from that, having a sort of a eureka moment about the power dynamic between men and women in heterosexual culture. That is a perspective that differs from any I have ever had. Now, I'm kind of like the younger folks whose jaws were dropped, you know, when they were listening to a 72-year-old porn star. (laughs) And I'm the one who's saying, huh, I never thought of things from that perspective. And the fact that such an illuminating moment for Fabian came out of that violation just goes to show again. That when something's lost, something's gained. When something's gained, something's lost. And the best way we can all learn from all these very different lived experiences is through sharing our stories. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Okay, so now for the real end of the episode. (laughs) Folks, have you ever wanted to share a story or an anecdote on the show? Just go to risk-show.com slash anecdotes or risk-show.com slash submissions. There's so much information there to help you with your pitch, your workshopping of your story, all sorts of help. And we want to hear your stories. And we want you to follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the podcast with fellow fans, as is our subreddit at Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? You can find me at kevinallison.com. And I also make these super fun little video greetings for folks. If you want to send a video greeting to a friend or a loved one, that is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. 
take a risk. <laughs>